at this time, I'm going to direct your attention to the screens. We have some friends of the ministry that are serving overseas that are going to read the word to us. It's a, it's a fairly long passage, so if you want to sit down, you may. It's Daniel 10 through 12. The message was true and was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich, rich food. No meat or wine entered my mouth. And I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone, looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me and sent me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I am saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. After, this, after he said this to me, I stood trembling. Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision refers to those days. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and was speechless. Suddenly, one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me and I am powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there is no breath in me. Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you, be very strong. And he spoke to me. I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. He said, do you know why I have come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. Chapter 11 says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. Now I'll tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided into four winds of heaven. But not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides him. The king of the south will grow more powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and will triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years, he will stay away from the king of the north, who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. 
His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his, his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemies. When the enemy is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come, to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coast and islands and capture many. But a commander will, be, will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. In his place, a despised person will arise, royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away from, away before him. They will be broken as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. <clears throat> With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed, because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall slain. The two kings, whose hearts are bent on evil, will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For still, the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. <clears throat> at the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time, not like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him and be intimidated, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple forces, fortresses, fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and will set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant, but the people who know their God will, take, will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give, un give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the god desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, 
a god his ancestors did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land and many will fall, but these will escape from his power. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Amorites, Ammonites, he will extend his power against the countries, not he, and not even against the, not even the land of Egypt. Sorry, will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites will also be in submission. But reports from the east and the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. Daniel chapter 12 says, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since, since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. One of them said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the water of the river, How long until the end of these wondrous things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. I heard, but did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, go on your way, Daniel. For the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. Hallows Church, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for the ways that you reveal yourself to us through your word. <clears throat> and not only yourself, but also what our world is like and what our hearts are like. We pray as um, we just dive into studying your word this morning that our hearts and our minds would be open to you. And that you would guide us um, by your spirit to be more like your son. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Yeah. So um, my name's Jake. I'm one of the elders here at the Hollows, and I'll be leading us in our study of the Word this morning. So uh, I personally, I find God's timing to never be my timing. I, I like to get things done quickly. Waiting in line is torture, which is, I know this is a little controversial why I don't like Disneyland. Um, but God, however, doesn't seem to have any qualms with making me wait. For example, Alexa and myself, um, were before we came to the Hollows, we're working at, at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, at the same church that we met and got engaged. And 
my apprenticeship at this church was coming to an end around the same time that Alexa and I were thinking about getting married, which was the same time that a global pandemic decided to ravage the world and bring a halt to normal life as we know it. Um, needless to say, I wouldn't have planned for all these things to happen at the same time. Um, now I had to search for a job in the middle of the pandemic with uh, an approaching wedding day on the horizon. What followed was months and months of excruciatingly long interviews with churches across the states. Um, I, I, I filled out hundreds of job applications. I interviewed with countless pastors and search teams. Um, and Alexa and I, we flew to several states, four states during that time for long in-person interviews. Um, and throughout this process of waiting, um, our prayer was that God would provide a new place of ministry before we got married. Now, as that that date was approaching and got closer and closer, it seemed less and less likely that God would answer this prayer in the way we hoped he would. Now, God must also have a sense of humor because the week of my wedding, just a few days before, I got the call from the Hollows that we got the job. So our, 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 home, our honeymoon included searching for an apartment in Seattle, and yeah, we flew out here two weeks later. Uh, you know, God, he, he certainly answered our prayers, but not according to my timeline, according to my preferences. And, but I can't be the only one who struggles with impatience. We live in a fast-paced culture that, that just thrives on speed, right? Amazon Prime, you, you can get anything you want with Amazon Prime just by a click of the button with, within 24 hours. Uh, downloads are instant. Uh, travel that used to take months, if not years, can now be traversed within hours. But the things that really matter, they still take time. It takes time to make a friend. It takes time to get to know your, your spouse and your kids. It takes time to become part of a, a local family of faith. Sadly, the cultural rhythms and habitual practices of instant gratification, they erode the patience and hope that we need to take the time to invest in the things that truly matter. The, the pastor and author Paul Tripp, he writes, I'm deeply persuaded that the church of Jesus Christ has been way too influenced by the short attention span, next best thing, instant gratification, and easily bored culture of the society in which we live and do our work. Impatience is in the very, the very air that we breathe. Now, our passage today can teach us something about patience. Maybe you already learned a little bit about patience when we were reading through the, those passages. Sorry for the family members who are here. This, this is longer than we usually study on a Sunday, but it is all one vision, and so we're, we're going to tackle it today. And I'll, I'll teach you something else about patience as we go through the text. No, I'll, I'll try to get done as fast as I can, as quick, efficiently as I can. But um, as we come to a close on our sermon series in the book of Daniel, God of the Exile, we see that even though Daniel lived in a, a society that was very different from our own, he still struggled with patience. Um, he, he, as, we, as we saw last week, Daniel thought the exile would, would end just after 70 years. But then he learns that the suffering of his people would not come to an end completely. The throne of David would still remain empty, and his people would be living in their homeland under foreign occupation. When will this suffering end? When will Israel be renewed to its former glory? When will God fulfill his promises to always provide a king for his people? I'm sure these questions were constantly on Daniel's mind. And we see in Daniel 10 through 12, God giving him an answer. It perhaps wasn't the answer that he was looking for, because God's timing wasn't Daniel's timing. And it's not ours either. In Daniel 10 through 12, we witness the final vision given to Daniel during his exile. Unlike the other visions, this one is less fantastical in nature, but it also has apocalyptic elements, which if you remember is a Greek word that means to unveil or reveal. In, in chapters 10 through 12, God gives Daniel a heavenly perspective on his earthly situation, revealing that the author of history will one day set all things right. In the text, we see a spiritual rebellion and a human rebellion, but through all the chaos, there is a resurrection hope. 
So let's look at the text and see how the author of history will one day set all things right. Now, as you saw, chapter 10 begins by setting the scene, letting the reader know that Daniel has received another vision, this one relating to a great conflict. The vision came during the third year of King Cyrus of the Medes and Persians, who allowed Israel and many other people groups to return to their homelands. During Cyrus's third year, the first groups of exiles from Israel had returned to Jerusalem, but Daniel and many others had remained behind, possibly because the the duties they had uh, to perform for Persia didn't allow them to leave. Now, during this time, there was disappointment surrounding the struggles Israel was having in re-inhabiting the land and rebuilding their capital, Jerusalem. You can read about this in the book of Ezra, which details the, the persecution that they faced from the surrounding people groups and also the less than, um, the less than glorious attempt at rebuilding the temple. Uh, things were not going well for the restoration of Israel. But Daniel receives a vision that speaks of a full and final restoration. Yet this restoration comes after a long period of war and violence. The vision disturbs Daniel so much that it leads him to a three-week period of mourning and fasting. From the time reference in verse 4, the 24th day of the first month, we see that Daniel's fasting took place during the time of the Passover and the unleavened bread which is traditionally a time for remembering the deliverance from Egypt um, and and for feasting. Daniel, he's not feasting. I'm sure it was difficult to remember God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt while still living in exile. As, As his people back home continued to suffer with no foreseen uh, relief on the horizon. Daniel, he received a word from God, but it was not, even though he understood it, he did not find it encouraging. God, he intervenes in this bleak situation with another vision that further explains the first. In verse 5, Daniel is hanging out with some friends by the Tigris River when suddenly a spiritual being breaks onto the scene. Now, Daniel's companions, they don't see this vision, but they're so terrified they run away, leaving Daniel alone, and he, he loses all strength, falling into a deep sleep. This sounds terrifying. This is not something I would want to experience, except for maybe the deep sleep part. That sounds pretty good. But uh, when you come face to face with the realities of of the spiritual realm, it's not always warm and fuzzy feelings. It's Daniel encounters a reality beyond himself, beyond the physical world, as God reveals that there is a spiritual rebellion going on behind the rise and fall of empires and the suffering of his people. The angel, he speaks to Daniel saying, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you purpose to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. A prince of Persia, isn't that a video game? Didn't, didn't Jake Gyllenhaal play him in a movie once? I'm, I'm sure he did. No, this is not that Prince of Persia. Daniel's angelic messenger has been doing battle with a fallen spiritual being that was influencing the destructive empire of Persia. He was aided by Michael, another spiritual being, and they did battle for 21 days, which kept this angel from coming sooner. Now, behind the, the long mourning of Daniel was the delay of the angelic messenger, a delay caused by a heavenly battle. Now, I know this sounds strange. It, it implies that there are evil spiritual beings influencing whole societies. Now, here we see that there is a spiritual rebellion going on alongside of the human rebellion. Now, in the beginning, God made everything good and and ordered. He made a good and ordered world, bringing life and light out of chaos and darkness. In Genesis chapter 1, God calls what he makes good seven times, and he crowns his creation with creatures made in his image, human beings who he charged with ruling and caring for all creation. Now, we were made to image God in his good world, to reveal to all creation who God is, and to unite heaven and earth, as, as creatures of both spirit and flesh. And God planted the first humans in the Garden of Eden to begin their rule and reign. But we see in Genesis 3 that not all is well. There is a strange beast called a serpent in this garden. 
a creature in rebellion against God. As the story goes on, it's clear this serpent was far more than simply a beast. For this crafty creature, he tempts the first humans to rebel against God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so deciding between right and wrong on their own terms instead of God's terms. And instead of becoming like God's, as the serpent claimed, the human rebellion brings death and destruction over all creation. Our relationship with God, with one another, and creation itself was broken. But that was the serpent's goal, to pull creation back into disorder and darkness. As, as the story of the Bible unfolds in a now fallen world, the serpent becomes one symbol among many to, to describe this evil spiritual being from the garden. It's given many names like the devil, which means uh, the slanderer, or the Satan, which means adversary. He's joined by other fallen angels who rebel against God and his, his host of angelic host of heaven, but also against God's people on earth. Throughout the Bible, we see evil spiritual forces continuing to tempt and plague the creatures made in God's image, inspiring violence and destruction. In the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we see a culmination of the spiritual and human rebellion as humanity is united in building this tower that would rise to the heavens and their attempt to try to unite heaven and earth on their own terms. God puts an end to this opposition and he scatters the peoples over the face of the earth. Moses, meditating on this story in the book of Deuteronomy, says that it was at this point that God handed over the nations to, to worship the rebel host of heaven, the, angels, the false gods of money, sex, and military power. These, these evil spiritual beings were at work behind the sinful systems we see in empires like Babylon, Persia, and Greece. They were in submission, worshiping these false gods that were actually evil spiritual beings. But these evil spiritual beings are also behind the sinful systems in which we live and work today. And at the same time, evil spiritual beings plague individuals with lies and, and temptations just like that in the Garden of Eden. The temptation to become the God of your own life instead of submitting yourself to the good wisdom and rule of God. Now, I know this all sounds strange, but the biblical picture of evil is far more nuanced than the picture that we often get in our own culture. For example, more conservative perspectives believe that poverty is due to the failure of individuals to, um, to work hard and make positive changes in their lives. But more liberal perspectives believe that poverty is caused by broken systems that perpetuate the subjugation of particular racial groups and, and communities. According to the Bible, both of these perspectives are correct. Because of our rebellion against God, each one of us, though made in God's image, is sinful. The church leader and reformer, Martin Luther, he defines sin as an inward curvedness, a propensity to always and only think about ourselves. We are plagued by this self-centeredness, which causes us to make choices that negatively affect ourselves, but also those around us. Now, just as we are sinful people, we sinful people make sinful systems that perpetuate brokenness on a societal scale. And at the same time, we, there is another dimension that the Bible puts, presents before us to consider, and that's the spiritual. Evil in the Bible, it's personal, it's societal, and it's spiritual. God made us as creatures in His image, as creatures of both spirit and flesh. And there's more to us than the physical, and there's more to the world in which we live than what we can see and sense with our bodies. And this spiritual realm, which exists alongside of the physical world, is not always a safe place. There is a heavenly battle going on all around us, of which we only catch murmurs and glimpses. The devil and his minions, they're constantly breeding lies causing division and bringing destruction, animating and exploiting human greed and selfishness, as well as our weak and broken mortal bodies. And Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he sums it up well when he says, in the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. 
when considering this spiritual rebellion, the question can rightly be asked, what is our part to play in this heavenly battle? I'll be honest, I'm no expert on the subject. It's all a little strange to me because I'm so used to the small view of the world that we often are presented with in the West. Um, I've never experienced anything like Daniel, but what I can suggest is what we see Daniel doing in the text. The angel says to Daniel in verse 12, don't be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. So we see that Daniel is doing two things. He He humbles himself and he prays. Now this is our part in the heavenly battle. Humility and prayer. Now, I know we've talked a lot about humility in this sermon series, but that's because it's that important. In the the book of Daniel, we've seen it lived out by Daniel and his friends, but we've also seen its opposite, pride, taken up by the wicked kings of the evil empires that oppress them. Now, uh, Andrew uh, Murray, an old preacher from South Africa, he wrote a book on humility, and he says this. He says, pride and humility are the two master powers, the two kingdoms in strife for the eternal possession of man. In pride, we take up the ways of that fallen angel in the garden who didn't want to submit to God's role. Oh, thank you. It's number one hero. That, him, and all the, all the fathers today are the number one hero. <laughs> yes, yeah, so pride, when we take up pride, we take up the way of that, that fallen angel from the garden who didn't want to submit to God's rule. In pride, we lose sight of the needs of those around us as we become, as we become just obsessed with our own wants and desires. And it's insidious because it can find us even in our good intentions and good deeds. When we succeed, it inflates us. Inflates us so that we think we're better than those around us. When we fail, it, it condemns us. It punishes us. To, it makes us feel small. Humility, on the other hand, it brings life. Murray again writes, Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows God to, to as all and allows him as God to do all. You know, walking in humility, it means accepting your place in the world not as a God, but as God's image. And Timothy Keller, he once said that it's not so much thinking less of yourself, but thinking of, of yourself think, thinking about yourself less. If sin is an inward curvedness, humility is ours open wide. Open wide in gratitude to the God who made us and in care for the neighbors that surround us. Now, and the preeminent way to enter into humility is prayer. In prayer, we make the declaration that we are not in control of our lives. Um, But in an amazing reversal, God uses our humble prayers to bring radical transformation in both the spiritual and the human realms. It's, and that's what we see in this text. The angel came because of Daniel's prayer. Now, this is what we're called to in the heavenly battle, humility and prayer. But honestly, sometimes the brokenness I witness in myself and in the world around me makes me wonder how the author of history will one day set all things right. We face, face a pr- three-pronged assault. The sin within us, the sinful systems in which we live, and the evil spiritual forces of darkness that are surrounding and influencing it all. Now, how can God really set things right against so much opposition? And how long will we have to wait for him to do so? Well, Daniel 10, it doesn't give us the answers, but it does show us the encouragement God gives us in the fight. It shows the provision for the faithful. The angel says two times uh, to Daniel that he is treasured by God. What an amazing statement. The the word treasured is a rare Hebrew word denoting something that is desirable, something of high status and value. This is how God sees all his children. He values us so highly that he gave all the way to save us. This is the provision of the faithful. 
God's amazing love. And we can stand strong on this cosmic battlefield because God is the one who holds us fast. And he is faithful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. You know, God does not leave us alone in this fight. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. By embracing and resting in his love, we can be humble people who make up a humble community. For if we truly rested in his amazing love, what more could there be to prove? Don't neglect the common practices of daily prayer, corporate worship, of meditation on God's word, of, and, and care for the poor. As we do these things, we, as we rest in his love as we do these things, these simple practices become our way to join in that fight against all those things that oppose God's kingdom. We strike a blow against the evil within us and all around us. Now, after this encouragement, Daniel gives his message to Daniel. In chapter 10, we've been given insight into the spiritual rebellion, but chapter 11 details the human rebellion. Now, I won't spend time on every historical reference, which could take our whole time if you, know, you saw the chapter 11 is pretty long. But also, Frank covered a lot of these details and did a good job of doing that in his last sermon on chapter 8, which is a parallel of chapter 11. Um, But to put it simply, chapter 11 reveals in more literal terms what the other visions have said through poetic imagery. It, It details the earthly battle that rages alongside of the heavenly battle where just like Nebuchadnezzar's uh, vision of the statue of four metals in Daniel 2, or the vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7, we see that empires will rise and they will fall. But through it all, God is in control. And the, the angel, he starts talking about the Persian empire and how it will fall to a warrior king from Greece who is none other than Alexander the Great. Um, Now, despite all of his victories in battle, he died of a fever and had little time to rule his vast empire, and it was split up into four parts. And chapter 11 focused on two particular um, parts of this kingdom, one in the north and one in the south, with the floundering nation of Israel caught in the middle. Now, the vision, it goes on to detail the history of Middle Eastern politics after the death of Alexander the Great, which leads up to the main bad king from the north in verse 21. Now, this is likely King Antiochus, who gave himself the title Epaphanes, God Manifest. Um, Again, Frank did a great job spending some time focusing on this king and the evils that he did. But there's there's an example of his evils in this um, chapter in verses 31 through 30. Um, His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. That's the temple of God in Jerusalem. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Now, these verses, they speak to how Antiochus seeking to use religion to unify his kingdom, made it illegal to practice the worship of the one true God, and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by setting up an image of Zeus, which was the abomination of desolation. Now, Antiochus, he he forced one Israelite a day to bow before Zeus. If they refused, he would mutilate and torture them in the temple courts. Uh, The the books of of Maccabees uh, detail the suffering of the people of Israel during this time. How many were killed, the blasphemies of this prideful king, and the revolt of the Jews, and how they took back the temple and Jerusalem. However, this victory is hardly acknowledged in the chapter. It's likely mentioned in verse 34 uh, that they, that is Israel, will be helped by some. The text, it moves on to detail um, the, the evils of Antiochus evils that were not stopped by the Maccabean revolt. It becomes clear near the end of the chapter that Antiochus is, is just one, is not, he's not just one king, but he's a symbol of evil rulers opposed to God as the details of the text begin to point beyond Antiochus to a ruler in times to come. Now, no wonder Daniel was so 
so depressed by this vision, right? God was confirming that the sufferings he was facing in exile in Babylon was just the beginning. The earthly battle would continue, and God's people, they would be caught in the middle, persecuted for their faith as they waited for God to set all things right. Yet even though this this earthly battle rages on, chapter 11, it also shows us that God is the author of history. Uh, There may be a spiritual and a human rebellion, but God is still in control. Now, one Bible commentator notes about the evil empires of chapter 11. Despite the fact that rulers become strong, suddenly they stand no longer. Their kingdoms are broken. They retreat. They fall. You know, God continues his plan to rule creation through those made in his image. But because we are fallen and the systems we create are fallen, they will never last. God only allows destructive empires to continue for so long. For he is the author of history, and he is working all things towards the good end he has in store for us. You can see this by the repeated phrase, appointed time. Now, history, it may seem meaningless. As one historian famously said, he said, I am unable to find any meaning in history. Yet for Daniel and for us, the curtain is pulled back, and we see that God is bringing meaning out of madness. But what does it mean that God is the author of history? If he is in control, why does he allow so much violence, so much destruction? And what about free will? Don't we have free, cho- free choices to make? And I wrestled with some of these questions a few weeks back, but they come to bear in this passage as well. The Bible, it never gives us an answer to um, the, the source of evil, where evil came from, but it does show over and over again that God uses evil for his own restorative purposes. Daniel experienced this himself in exile in Babylon. The people of Israel disobeyed God by persecuting the, the poor, ravaging their lands, worshiping false gods. So, so God used the evil empire of Babylon to punish them and send them away into exile. But we also see from the book of Daniel that God used this punishment to refine his people, to grow their faithfulness. And this is what God is always doing. He's bringing good out of bad, guiding even evil toward his own purposes. I've experienced this in my own life. I've had a longstanding struggle with OCD and and Tourette-like tendencies. It was so bad at one point that I could hardly function. But God continues to meet me in my place of brokenness with the, the good news that his grace is sufficient, that his love will never change. And God, that's what God is doing in each one of our lives. He's using these difficult experiences, our trials and our pain, to remind us of his love, to make us more like his son, Jesus. Well, while God continues to bring good out of evil, the, the reality of free will also has a part in the persistence of evil and suffering. C.S. Lewis, he writes, the sin both of men and of angels was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will because he saw that from a world of free creatures, even though they fell, God could work out a deeper happiness and fuller splendor than any world of automata would admit. See, do you see what Lewis is saying here? He, God didn't want to make creatures that had to do his will, but creatures who could choose to do his will. He made us not as mindless robots, but as creatures in his image, made to rule alongside of him. He made us for relationship. And as you know, any real love requires the freedom to choose such love. Now, Lewis says elsewhere, to love at all is to be vulnerable. God made himself and his world vulnerable so that we might enter into his great love. So God gave us the choice to worship and serve him as we were made to do, or worship and serve ourselves. Now, we certainly are free to make this choice, and God is still in control. God's sovereignty in no way negates our free will. You can see this in, the, in Proverbs 16, 9, for example. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, at one level, this seems contradictory. How can someone make their own plans but still be guided by the Lord? Well, one pastor ex- explains this conundrum by pointing out that God does not work in spite of our choices, but through our choices to work out his plan of redemption. This means that we have real choices to make. 
And we are rightly held accountable for our choices. But God uses whatever we determine in our hearts to guide all history toward the good end that he has in mind, where heaven and earth finally meet. You can think of it like a cruise ship. While on the cruise ship, you can have freedom to, to do as you like. You can hang out by the pool or watch a movie or spend time at the buffet. But whatever you're doing, the ship is still on course to its planned destination. This is good news because it means we can participate in what God is up to in the world while having the confidence that even when we fail or struggle, God is still working all things together for his glory and for our good. Now, our our role in this earthly battle then is not to bring this good end about, not to use violence to meet violence so we can get our way or make life easier. We don't bring the new creation. No, we can rest secure knowing that the end is already written. Our role is faithful presence, to, to be faithfully present to what God is doing within us and all around us. Now, I've already mentioned how verse 34 says that the Maccabean revolt only brought some help. Now, the angelic messenger in verse 14 also mentions how violent Israelites will rise up, but their plans will fail. When we take up the ways of the violent empires around us, our work will never bring the full restoration that our hearts long for. Jesus, he doesn't call us to meet power with power, but in weakness to love even our enemies. Paul writes to the church in Rome facing their own troubles under an oppressive um, Roman empire. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is what the way of Jesus looks like in the midst of the earthly battles of history, amidst the spiritual and human rebellion going on all around us. This is what it looks like to wait for him to set all things right. It might seem impractical, maybe even impossible, but this is the way of the cross. Jesus won his victory over evil, not by taking power, but by giving it away on the cross. You know, the the glory of the resurrection certainly came, but not before the suffering of death. And it's the same for all who follow him. We are called to embrace the ups and downs of history and the suffering it brings, trusting that God is using even these difficult moments for our good. As the angelic messenger said about the people of God in verse 35, some of, of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The the good end God has in store is still coming, and these moments of suffering in the in-between are used by Him to refine us and prepare us for the day that He will set all things right. But what is this good end that God has in mind? It's only as we hope rightly that we can live rightly, because what you hope for shapes what you love, and what you love shapes who you become. Daniel, he has been given insight into the human rebellion and the spiritual rebellion, but the messenger goes beyond the cycles of evil empires rising and falling to reveal how the author of history will one day set all things right. The vision ends with resurrection hope. Now, as we move into chapter 12, the angelic messenger speaks to Daniel saying, there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And the book of Daniel has been leading us up to this resurrection hope, to this promise of the renewal of all things. And Daniel's people, they were sent into exile because of their sin. But even after repentance and restoration, uh, their suffering continued. This shows that not all suffering is due to corrective punishment. God made us in his image to rule for and care over creation. But when evil and violent rulers rise up who ignore God's ways, they become like beasts 
They become like the very creatures we were made to rule over, and they ravage the images of God who, who live within their oppressive empires. What justice is there for those who, who perish under such beastly regimes? What justice is there for those like Daniel who, who labored so faithfully in exile, yet never saw the full restoration of his people? The answer is the renewal of all things. To better understand this hope, we, we need to consider the biblical imagery going on in verse 2. The reference to the dust of the earth brings us back to Genesis 3, where the first humans rebelled against God by listening to the spiritual rebel, particularly to the curse Adam received for his rebellion. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to the dust." So because of the first human's rebellion, death came into the world. But now we see the promise that this curse will be reversed. Now, some Old Testament passages, member, or they, they mention the conviction that fellowship with the Lord will continue after death. But Daniel and a few others, they, they give us a clear picture of resurrection hope. This is not the promise of a consolation prize after a long, hard life, but a full and final restoration. A renewal of all things, where the people who have fallen into the dust rise up from the dust into everlasting life. These are new bodies. They're the same, but different. As we see from verse 3, when the angel speaks about how the righteous will shine like the great expanse of the heavens and like the stars forever and ever. Throughout the Bible, stars are often, they often represent spiritual beings. So we can see that this promise in Daniel, set, uh, Daniel 12 connects to Jesus' words about resurrection life when he said, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Now, Jesus, he, he isn't saying that we will be like angels because we will be fully spiritual. That actually goes against God's intention from the beginning to unite heaven and earth. Every follower of Jesus will be like the angels because we will have glorified bodies that last forever. But they will still be bodies of both spirit and flesh. They will be the bodies that we have now, but glorified and the world we will inhabit will not be some ethereal place in the clouds with you know, little babies with wings playing harps or whatnot. No, it will be a restored creation where we will en- enjoy fellowship with God as we rule alongside of Him as He always intended. Now, this is an amazing hope. It's unlike anything offered by any other religion or philosophies. Uh, Vinith Ramachandra, she uh, speaks about this renewal of all things, writing, So our salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say that there's salvation in other faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world the way the cross and the resurrection of Jesus do. What an amazing end to the story of history, a renewal of all things. The professor Andrew DeBanco in his book, The Real American Dream, he writes about the importance of understanding our lives as a story that has a particular end in mind instead of a meaningless procession of disjointed events. Uh, Is your life going somewhere? Is it accomplishing something? Our hearts, they long for answers to these questions. The Banco writes, we must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days if we are to escape the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. The sad thing is that our culture has, by and large, lost any real sense of the transcendent, of something beyond the physical, which has resulted in a greater emphasis on consumerism, on getting and spending money. Yet, when we're honest with ourselves, does all this getting and spending really fulfill? Does it really... Is it really fulfill those promises that it claims? Well, of course not. No, our hearts were made to know the love of the one who made all things. You know, many see history in their own lives as 
meaningless, but God gives us the story that we need to make sense of not only our own lives, but all of history. He gives us a love that truly satisfies where all the other people and things only fail on their promises. And God doesn't fail on his promises. In Daniel 12, we see the end of his grand narrative, and it's a beautiful one. It's a hope. It, it's this, the hope of this good ending sh- it should guide us not only in how we use our money, but in how we conduct ourselves in every area of life. If, if the story ends with the renewal of all things, it means we can love our enemies, we can suffer for doing good, because God will one day set all things right. Now, I have to note, however, that there, is, there will be a final judgment. We see this in verse 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Now, this is really a hard saying, one that I wrestle with at times. But we must remember that God, though he is full of love, he is also just. He won't allow the destruction and violence of the spiritual and human rebellion to go unpunished. To truly set things right, justice must be given. Daniel and his friends suffering under oppressive empires, they longed for this justice. The good news is that in the cross, we see God's justice against sin and his love for sinners wonderfully and beautifully come together. Jesus came to be the perfect image of God that we failed to be. And on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved for our participation in the rebellion against God. Those who put their faith in Jesus, who is both fully God and the true human, they, they, will, not, they will be saved from this final judgment and given the promise of the new creation. And don't get me wrong, the picture of God gleefully throwing people into the fires of hell is not, it's not a biblical v- image. But just as God hands people over to the destructive consequences of their sin throughout the cycles of evil empires that is the history of spiritual and human rebellion, he will hand people over to a final punishment for a life lived only and always for the self, for a continual rejection of the grace offered to us in Jesus. Lewis, he described it this way. Um, You can see it up on the screen. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. The the new creation, this renewal of all things, is the place where God's kingdom covers all things. For those who want nothing to do with God, he will grant them their wish. God's messenger, he gives Daniel this grand picture of resurrection hope, but he's left with with questions. He has to turn back from this grand vision to the confusion and disappointments of everyday life. What does this resurrection hope have to do with the problems of Israel or with Daniel's everyday struggles living in exile? Well, everything. The messenger leaves Daniel with a word of encouragement. He says, happy is the one who waits. Waiting is not fun. But the most important things in life, they take time, right? So surely this renewal of all things will also take time. For us living in the in-between, between the victory of Jesus and his death and resurrection and the full establishment of his kingdom, when he will come again to set all things right, we are given this encouragement too. We are given the call to wait. Waiting is a lot easier when you can, you can be sure of the outcome. So how can we be sure that the author of history will one day set all things right? The good news is that we have a more sure hope than even Daniel did. He looked forward to this murky vision of the future where he saw all things renewed, but we can look to Jesus who confirms that this resurrection hope is not just wishful thinking. He is the resurrection and the life. Paul speaks of him as the first fruits of the resurrection. Writing to the church in Corinth, he says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The first fruits is referring to God's command in the law of Moses to dedicate the first of the harvest to him as a sacrifice and in anticipation for the full harvest to come. In the same way, Jesus is our sacrifice for sin, whose resurrection signals the beginning of the new creation of a whole harvest of resurrection life. 
Adam, he's the representative of the human rebellion. For in his disobedience, death came into the world. But Jesus, he is the representative of the new creation. For in his obedience, even unto death on a cross, the resurrection life has come for all those who believe in him. Now, when we look to Jesus, we see that God, he's not aloof to our suffering. It's all well and good to know that God is sovereign, working through the actions of sinful people to bring good even out of evil, but, but it's not necessarily comforting when you're actually suffering. In Jesus, we see that God, he's not simply in control, but he has entered into our suffering and taken it upon himself. How did he deal with evil? He dealt with evil by allowing evil to destroy him on the cross. When you suffer, know that Jesus is right there with you. He knows what it's like to struggle through the brokenness of this life, patiently waiting for the day when all will be set right. He is waiting with us even now. But he's also victorious. In his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated all the forces of darkness. We can know that the author of history will one day set all things right because in Jesus, he's already begun this great work. And Jesus promises that when he comes again, he will raise us up to rule with him in the new creation. Now, we have this call to wait for the renewal of all things, for only the author of history can bring it about. But we don't wait alone. And we, don't, we are not idle in our waiting. Jesus is with us by his spirit, birthing in us through the life of the new creation. And thankfully, like, unlike standing in line at a ride in Disneyland, our, idle, our, our waiting is not idle. It's not unproductive because we get to join God in what he's doing within us and what he's doing all around us. You may feel restless in this time of waiting, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not fidgeting while you wait till death. No, God, he's doing his work in you by his spirit to form you into the likeness of Jesus. And through you, he's bringing the new creation into the old world. Paul says, uh, we wrote, read, read this together earlier, but he, let me just point you to that again in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain? In some way, all the things we do for God and his glory, for the good of our friends and, and neighbors, the love we share when it's not easy, the forgiveness we give when it hurts, the generosity shown to those who can never pay us back, it will all be there in the new creation. The work God did through us, like one beautiful brick among many that will make up the city of God. And so what I invite you to is, is to this new creation work. It requires patience, lots of patience. You know, Christ, he's made us new, but he's still making us new, right? And Jesus, he's one, but the world around us is still catching up on this wonderful truth. We've seen over and over again through the, the series on Daniel that God is in control, that he has won the final victory. But the Babylons that we live in don't recognize this truth. Our, our culture, it, it's obsessed with, with speed, with results. And so we've got to be careful that we're not being conformed into its likeness instead of the likeness of Jesus. You know, bearing good fruit for the kingdom, it requires us to slow down, to be present to the small works of Jesus growing up all around us. It looks more like gardening than buying things on Amazon. You know, God, he, he didn't do his work according to my time frame or my preferences when I was looking for a job, and he still works in ways that confound me even today. But he is the one who's in control. He is the author of history. We aren't. Hey, Daniel, he wanted a new Israel. He wanted a new king, but God had something better in mind for his people. In his own timing, in his own way, he did raise up a new people. He did bring a new king, but now this new community is a place for peoples of all nations to come into the new creation, and ruled by the king of kings, who has defeated our real enemies, sin, death, and the devil. So for those listening or followers of Jesus, I want, I want to leave you with this call to wait. The author of history will one day set all things right, but this grand work, it doesn't ultimately depend on you. It doesn't ultimately depend on the Hollows Church. It's, it's much bigger than any one person, than any one community of faith. We are simply called to be faithfully present to the work God is doing within us and all around us. Th this doesn't mean that we should just 
pray and hope for the best. No, God calls us to live with wisdom, with shrewdness, which we saw Daniel and his friends display over and over again throughout the book of Daniel. So ask yourself these questions. Is the ministry I am doing bearing good fruit? Do I look more like Jesus today than a year ago? Am I loving my spouse and kids more or less? Am I more committed to God's people or less? Am I more dependent on the provision of God or less? You know, these spiritual checkups and, and other questions that are similar are so important. They help us keep on track about how we are growing into the likeness of Jesus and how our communities of faith are becoming more in the likeness of Jesus. But we should also not hold so tightly to the ways we believe God must work that we miss the ways God is working. To do this requires slowing down, being present. Following Jesus, it's more like a marathon than a 50-meter dash. It requires committing yourself to the practices of the church, both individually and communally, over the long haul, to silent prayer, reading God's word, celebrating the gospel with your faith family. You know, more than anything, God wants us to just recognize that he is with us, to walk beside him in this journey of faith, and to do that not alone, but with this community of faith that he has called us to. You know, recently in my times of silent prayer and reflection, I haven't found uh, the answers to this or that nagging question that I might have, but, but God has been meeting me in the waiting with the truth that he is with me. Would you listen to his voice too? I know that he is there longing for you to hear that he is with you even in the waiting. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, I also ask that you would listen to this voice of the Lord and Savior who gave all the way to save you. He is the author of history, and he will one day set all things right. History isn't meaningless. Your life isn't meaningless. But to experience God's good ending, you must accept that he is the author and you are not. Doing so, it won't make life any easier. I can, I can tell you that. But it will give you a mission that is forever meaningful, a hope that is sure and unshaken, and a companion on this journey who will never leave you nor forsake you.